Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, I want to jump in pretty quickly here because we left each other hanging quite a bit uh, last week. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a guest with us, Jesus is explaining what it means to be sexually pure uh, to God. And that leads into a discussion about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So let's look at the connection here. Jesus said a couple weeks ago when we were looking at this, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, you commit adultery with her in your heart. So he deals with the issue of lust and he deals with the issue of adultery. We said that Jesus puts lust on the same line with adultery and we explained why because essentially sex is a a marital thing. It's nuptial. And so outside the boundaries affects just a marital issue. All right? Uh, And so if you, you put them on the same line morally. And you can't talk about lust without talking about adultery in Jesus' mind. Uh, And then he, right after this, he's not finished with this issue of adultery. He goes to, let me bring up the issue of divorce. And by the way, he says, uh, lust isn't the only way you commit adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he's basically saying that divorce leads to remarriage, and remarriage leads to adultery. So the concept and the the conversation about marriage leads to this. If you talk about lust, you talk about adultery. If you talk about adultery, you talk about marriage and divorce because sex and marriage are inextricably linked Um, all throughout Scripture, we've said. And so we pointed out last week that there is a theme thematically. These are related, these topics, and syntactically they are related. So Jesus just naturally goes right from uh, the topic of lust and adultery to the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So what he's essentially saying is this. Lust is morally equivalent to adultery. And divorce is morally equivalent to adultery. You say, how in the world does he get there? Well, if sex is tied to marriage. You can't break the marriage vow without there being sexual ramifications. If, if sex is part of the covenant making in a marriage, then it's part of the covenant breaking when it comes apart. There's a sexual dynamic in both marriage and Divorce and remarriage. Uh, Because, so there are sexual ramifications on both. That's the point. Which made us say out loud to one another that marriage is more than a legal thing. Marriage is more than a legal thing. And sex is more than a physical thing. So because of the bind, the sort of the binding power of sex, divorce results 
and sexual damage and sin. So if you want to be sexually pure, Jesus is saying, you avoid lust in your heart and you avoid divorce and essentially remarriage because divorce leads to remarriage. That's what we're going to see. So sex is either making a covenant or breaking one. And so we get to Luke, we get to this text or Matthew 5, 32. And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. Why? Because she's forced to remarry. Everyone divorces. Most people divorce in order to remarry. And in that culture, you had to, especially if you were the woman. The, the men sent one wife away so that they could have another one, and the woman was in a desperate situation. She had to have another one. So you created a remarriage sort of dynamic where Jesus, for divorce, for Jesus, divorce and remarriage are, are linked. He assumes you're going to remarry. And, of course, that would lead to a sexual violation if sex didn't break the marriage to begin with. If sex breaks the marriage to begin with, then there's already a sexual break. But if sex doesn't break it and you divorce and then remarry somebody else, that new covenant, that new relationship is a sexual violation of the old one. That's what he's saying. You can't disconnect those two pieces. So, sex has created a flesh, a one flesh bond. Adultery breaks the bond. You can break that bond sexually. Legally, you can break it, but that's not enough. A new marriage is going to have a sexual break in it as well because they're connected. So divorce, for any other reason other than sexual sin, leads to sexual sin. Remarriage is adultery on the grounds that divorce, though legal, still violates the one flesh union of the original marriage. So the only thing that really breaks the marital bond is not divorce papers, sex. Sex is what gets you into the covenant. Sex will break it. So the divorce and the right to remarry are inseparable, but they have, but they have sexual effects. They have effects. They have impact. Um, divorce has devastating effects. We all know that. But remember, this isn't one of the top commands. It grows out of the seventh commandment of don't commit adultery. So it's not based on a command that Jesus moves to adultery, except for the fact that it's adultery. But divorce is anchored in creation, not a command, even though it's prohibited. It's primarily based in creation. I created male and female. And then I brought them together and created something else, a one flesh union. That one flesh union is sexual in nature. So when you break it, you break it in a sexual way as well. So, as one writer said, divorce disrupts a natural unit. And so when you, whenever you do that, you create harm. Because this is an arrangement in nature that God has established, 
And no human act can change that order. Now, this is important to say. It applies both ways and all around. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus will put it this way. Whoever divorces it sounded like, well, only the woman commits adultery when she remarries. What about the guy? Well, Jesus addresses that in Matthew 19. He, he lets her go. He divorces her for something other than sexual immorality. He marries another person. He and she commit adultery. Just like here, the woman and the man she marries commits adultery. So it works both ways, in case you're wondering. This is something Jesus did, and it's a subtle thing, but it's really important to realize. Culture didn't have a high view of women. Jesus did. Culture didn't have a high view of women, but Jesus did. He said, no, no, you're not getting away with it. So it applies both ways. So let me tell you what Jesus, what we're getting at here, just to make sense of this. Jesus is not saying that adultery has to result in divorce. But this is important. He is saying it breaks the marriage bond. It breaks the marriage bond. You can rebuild it, but you are rebuilding that bond again. It's covenant breaking. Whenever I'm sitting with a couple who've been, one of them has committed an affair, I say to them, this bond is busted. Can you repair it? Absolutely. You don't have to get a divorce because someone's committed adultery. We all know that. But some people think you have to. You don't have to. You can rebuild it. But make no mistake, that sexual violation has busted the bond, and it can be rebuilt. Jesus is not saying that divorce is never permissible. It's another important thing to recognize. He's giving you the effects of marriage, the sexual effects of a remarriage. But he's not saying remarriage is forbidden. It breaks the original covenant. And so it has effects. But he's not saying you can't remarry. And when you remarry, well, I'm going to bring that topic up a little bit later. But at the end of the day, let me, when you remarry someone, you don't live in a condition of adultery. Neither Matthew 19 or Mark or Matthew 5, Mark 10, uh, the language, none of it suggests that you are forever adulterous. You committed adultery when you made the new marriage. Now you have a new marriage, make the marriage work. Keep that marriage pure. So you don't live in a state, you're not considered an, an adulterer forever. But the new marriage is an adulterous act. Once it's done, you have a new marriage. Live in it. Live in it. Well, so here's essentially, Jesus has a very high standard for sexuality. Uh, almost over, it's overwhelming. Uh, so if, if you have lusted in your heart or you've been divorced and remarried for something other than adultery, We've committed adultery. That puts about every single one of us in the room as guilty. 
And so Jesus is saying, well, if you want to avoid committing adultery and you want to avoid causing adultery, then protect yourself from lust and breaking up marriages. Protect yourself from lust and divorce. That's what sexual purity is. You want to really be sexually pure? Guard your heart. Don't use people. Don't dehumanize people. And keep your marriage healthy. Honor the marriage bond that sex has created, and you'll be sexually pure. That's what's at the heart of Jesus in Matthew 5. It's the sexual implications of divorce. We could sit around here all day long and argue about all the negative effects of divorce. Jesus is only talking about one in this text, and that's the adultery part, the sexual part, because it's intricate in marriage and remarriage. So you want to you want to have a, if you're in the kingdom and you want a pure heart, then you're going you're gonna to monitor your own heart and lust, and you're going you're gonna to honor the marriage bond. Person who comes to know me, this is what it means to live in the kingdom. I'm going to give them a heart that longs for purity, whether it's a private matter or whether it's a true relational matter. So, as always, I would say to you, uh, the most important thing is not what happened to you a year ago or 10 years ago or that crazy mistake you made in high school or you don't know what you were thinking in college or, you know, your 30s went south, you know, 40s blew up, you, you made mistakes. And here you are sitting today and you know somewhere on this spectrum between lust and remarriage and divorce, you violated. The most important thing on the table is where is your heart today? Today is what matters to God. Let it go. If you find yourself in a situation right now, divorced or remarried or wanting to get married, it doesn't matter. Guard your heart right now. So, with that in mind, let me speak to the married and the remarried. First of all, let me say this. The goal is not to avoid divorce. Okay, when you come into the kingdom, the goal in marriage is not to avoid divorce. There are people who would be really happy to get to heaven well, we didn't get a divorce. Look at us. Really excited about their righteous. Uh, you know, we didn't get a divorce. Uh, because the reason that can't be the case, because we've already said it here. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount's about. I'm concerned about your heart. You can do a lot of damage before you cross the divorce line, right? You might say, I didn't get a divorce but you're a real jerk to live with. Like you have made life hard on your spouse. Your heart has hardened. And you, you, living with you is detrimental to your psych, psyche. And so Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm not saying that the goal is not to cross this line. I'm saying the goal is to be a loving person so that this is not even... 
part of the picture, part of the plan. So religion is, eh, as long as we don't cross that line, we're good. No, that's not enough for Jesus. In fact, look what he says in Matthew 19.8. You want to get down to the real reason divorces happen? It's the hardness of heart, he says. It's the hardness of your heart. Listen, you can have a hard heart in any circumstances, but one of one, the primary root issue for Jesus is a hard heart. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And people who come into the kingdom... Jesus is saying, don't have hard hearts. When they're dealing with people, they're compassionate in any of the circumstances. Married, divorced, remarried, unmarried. This word is the word sclerosis. This is where we get the whole idea of the hardening of the tissue. And it's always a spiritual matter. Anytime it's used throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, the idea of a hard heart is a spiritual condition. It's just something happens inside of you and you can feel it. You start to get a little bit rebellious. Um, that, that feeling. And Mike Mason in his book, Mystery of Marriage, says there's a, there's, there's a little sense in obeying the command not to divorce if you're neglecting to love one another fully. And so what happens is when your heart starts to become hard, you become a little spiritually rebellious, a little stubborn, a little deaf. You don't, you don't hear what you ought to hear. You become a little defiant. One day you said, I do. Then sometime in the marriage you said, I don't. You said, I do. And then at some point in the marriage, you just stop doing the things you know you ought to be doing. But it doesn't stop there. I don't turns to I won't. That's the hard heart. That's the hard heart. I'm not going to. It's that spirit. That's a spiritual problem. And so you may avoid divorce. You may avoid divorce. But something has shifted in you. And you've become self-focused even in your marriage. Now you can feel it. What you want and what you feel you deserve is priority. And you can feel yourself pulling away. And you want to know what it looks like? You start rationalizing sinful, unhealthy actions and attitudes. You can feel yourself withdrawing a little bit. You're not communicating quite as well. You don't. And you're making life difficult for your spouse. You find little ways to make life difficult for them. That's one way. Another way is you just refuse to apologize. You just cannot admit you were wrong. You can't admit you didn't meet up. You can't admit it. Or you refuse to change a behavior. You just refuse. I'm not going to stop that. Is that where your heart is? That's the I won't. Or another way you might detect a hard heart is you just refuse help. You know, if you have a partner that senses there's a problem in the marriage and they bring that problem up and the two of you have tried but can't solve it and you're, one of you isn't willing to get help and the other one is begging for you guys to get help and you won't, that's a problem. Now, 
I've seen it both ways, a woman unwilling to get help and a man unwilling to get help, but men especially. There's just something about thinking, I don't need help. That's a guy for you. I don't need any. I got it. I got it. I don't need it. I'm fine. And it's just a lack of humility. And if your spouse, I don't care which side it is, is saying, I desperately need to get somebody to come in between us here. A hard heart will say no. The other thing I think a hard heart reveals is, is you just stop discovering new ways to be a good spouse. You just stop learning altogether. Um, you know, uh, it's really cool in a marriage if you read something, your wife comes home and says, you'll never believe what I heard or you'll never believe what I read about what this, I saw this couple do it. Or maybe you, it was a guy, you read something, you go, wow. You saw a bad example of something or you saw a good example of something, you bring that home and you go, hey, let's not do that. Or, hey, let's do this. It's just constantly rediscovering and learning, and there's always something new. It doesn't matter how long you've been married. There's always a fresh way or a, an interesting way to look at something. And, and a hard heart won't do that. David Brooks has a book called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. He's got a couple of good books out. In this book, he's just, I think it's his latest. He writes for the New York Times. Uh, he's got a chapter, a couple of chapters on marriage and intimate relationships, and he admits that he failed at marriage. But his chapters on marriage are very interesting. Uh, and he says, you know, you can be centimeters apart and miles away. And he says, when, when that happens, you have to learn, he describes it as, the art of recommitment. And, of course, I've been reflecting on that since uh, I read it. Uh, that, means, that means commitment and covenant determine how you're going to get through a difficult time, not feelings. Your feelings can't be the thing. It's a covenant. Covenant is the foundation, the beginning point of a marriage from the, from the get-go. It's not your feelings, it's that covenant. So you come back to the covenant, not your feelings. And he quotes Parker Palmer, who I've read uh, a few things by. He says, if you can't get out of it, get into it. If you can't bail, then march in there and make that baby work. Because there's no easy way out, which is what Jesus is trying to say. Double down. The only way forward is double down, he says. I was thinking about this art of recommitment and over the 35 years of my marriage, and there are times when the recommitment is just something that happens inside your own heart. It's personal. You're going through a hard time, and you just know in your own heart, okay, I got to march. I got to be what I got to be. And you never say it out loud. You just do it. That's the personal part. Then there's a corporate time. This is a time when you just call each other. You just say, hey, we need to call a time out here. We, I, can, I can feel this thing's going sideways. We need to just have a meeting. It could be a, a dinner. It could be just a, a hard conversation tonight. You know, It could be a weekend away, but we need to just stop everything right now and recommit here. Right now, we're not, neither one of us are feeling great, but we need to commit to what matters here. So it could be either way. Either way. You either talk to yourself, and by the way, all married people talk to themselves. They all look a little nuts. All married people are a little nuts. And so they talk to themselves. 
he quotes Mike Mason, who, who, who has written my favorite book on marriage, The Mystery of Marriage, and he says this. Mike Mason writes this. It's a deliberate choosing of closeness over distance, of companionship over detachment, of relationship over isolation, of love over apathy, of life over death. A marriage lives paradoxically upon those almost impossible times when it is perfectly clear to the two partners that nothing else but pure, sacrificial love can hold them together right now. And there are times when there is nothing to hold on to but commitment and sacrifice. That's how it feels. It's the only thing that's going to save us right now. Now, I want to say something about this. Because this is a time where a lot of people bail. Because they have somehow lived with the idea that you can actually live with another human being and not go through hell sometimes. Impossible. But there are levels of intimacy that are achieved after you get through those times when you think nothing's going to save this thing. If you can get to the other side of that thing, something beautiful happens. And over the years, it wasn't until I was, I had to be married over 20, close, moving in on 25 years before I realized that there are different kinds of love. When Gail and I were first, when we first met, you got to know Hillside. I was head over heels. I have never in my life, I can think back on it and really have like really warm feelings because it was romantic, what we did, how we dated, how it all worked out, the way I had to win her heart, I had to buy her basically, I had to, I had to spend a lot of money. It was a lot, you know, it was a lot of things involved. I did what I had to do, okay? And it was very romantic and I reflect back on it with just great, we talk about it sometimes and it's just with great joy. But our marriage after 35 years, isn't, those aren't the primary feelings of love. It's gone through different layers of love. And you don't know them until you get through a hard time. And pretty soon, it's not the romanticized feelings. It's not looks anymore. It's not those things. Something else is there. Do you real? I, I remember after our first year, within our first year of marriage, Gail had her bags packed and ready to leave me. With, with good reason. And I almost, and now I think back on 35 years and I think to myself, and you would do the same thing, you'd just go, oh my gosh, if you guys would have bailed there, what would you have missed? And I think to myself, oh my gosh, I almost bailed right there. I almost let her go. I can think to a little later time, about year six, something similar. I don't know. This is going to happen. And then you break through that and you get into a whole other stage of marriage and a dynamic because you work through it. Then I remember getting to 20. I remember a time when 20 years was just ruining couples. They got to the end of 20 years and it was as if they said, I got no more left. And they were out. And they went through a hard time at 20 years. At 20 years when you go through a hard time, you go, well, are we supposed to be going through hard times at 20 years? <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. You better believe it. And 20 years came around, and I go, oh, my goodness. And then we got through that 20-year 
thing. And we got to year 25, and we went on a trip to celebrate 25 years. And I can think of my heart. I go, what would have happened if we bailed at 20? Look what we have now. Look what we've made it through together. That creates something that nothing else can. And I look at couples sometimes, and I go, man, you bailed too early. Because there were levels of love you, you'll never know because you bailed on it. Now we're at 35, and I can remember between 25 and 35, there's been a couple of times when I go, I think I married the wrong person. Can you believe that? <laughs> I think I married the wrong person, and I'm almost certain you did. Right? That happens. You have that literal feeling right there. And at 35 years right now, I can honestly tell you, I have experienced things, levels of love with Gail that are far, far, far deeper and different and better than what we had in, 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 in those, those early years. And you never know it because you bail. Philip Yancey describes it as... Um, he calls it a second love. And I actually think there's more than just a second love that emerges. But he writes this. Um, perhaps it takes a lifetime. It took me 20 to 25 years to catch on to this. Wow, look what's happening. Hard time, look what we have now. Hard time, look what we have now, though. He writes this. To realize what unity with another person really means, it takes time. He says, we learn each other's strengths and weaknesses. We work out power sharing. We learn when to probe, when to back off, when to soothe, when to challenge. And grad gradually, he says, as two independent people share a common reality, and this is the great line, a kind of transfiguration takes place. The relationship morphs into something else when you make it through sucky times. The relationship morphs into something better, and he calls it a second love. And I would say there's more than two. Have you ever had runner's high? How many of you have never had runner's high? It's very likely you haven't run long enough. I'm going to tell you that right now because I have run at different times in my life, okay? And everybody kept talking about runner's high, and I go, I've never had it. You people are nuts, okay? I've had runner's depression. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've taken six steps and go, this is miserable. Okay, so one time in my life, this is a few years back, uh, I said, I'm going to run hard enough to get runner's high. Now, it took a number of miles. I had to get up in miles. I mean, don't freak out. I wasn't like a, I wasn't a marathon runner or anything. I'll get the wrong idea. But I had to run long enough. And you know what happens? You hit that runner's high. And I tell you, it feels like you can run forever if you hit it. But here's the thing. It does not last. You know what you have to do? You, then you hit runner's depression. And then you got to work through the depression. To, you, can hit a, you can hit a second high in a run. You just got to run long enough to hit it. That's marriage. You will have a high. And you'll be like, this is the greatest thing ever. I could run forever with you. Run with me, baby. And then... Oh my gosh, I hate you. Get away from me. I don't want to run with you at all. And you got to work through that, and then you hit another runner's high. You got to hang in there. 
So let me get a few, let me get, let me set out a few things you'd be good to just remind ourselves about to get clear on marriage. Thinking of that. Number one, it's okay if there are seasons or times in your marriage when you're not getting everything you need from your partner. You got to survive those. Those are the runner depression times. You're not getting everything you need. I don't know. It could be emotional support. It could be we're not, we're not romantic enough or we're not, maybe we're not intimate enough. There's just seasons where one of you isn't getting everything you'd really like to be getting out of your marriage. Well, welcome to marriage. That's how it is. It's okay. I'm telling you, it's okay to have seasons where you don't get everything you need. That's not time to bail. You hang in there and you love for other reasons. You, you don't love because you're getting. You don't love. And then all of a sudden, you start loving in a different way. It's not that you just feel love differently and better. You start loving differently and better when you're not doing it to get something. The other thing is it's okay to disagree. It is okay to disagree. We've had a million disagreements. Many of them, after 35 years, have blurred into nothingness. Over the last three to five years, we've gotten one lately where we're kind of disagreed. I won't tell you what it is. You don't really want to know, be honest. But it's a disagreement. And uh, now, three to five years later, I've lost. I'm just going to go ahead and admit, I've lost that disagreement. I have not won that disagreement, even though I still think. In heaven, we'll see that I was right. <laughs> we can't determine it now in any court of law. We'll never take my side on it, but heaven will. And I got to wait till then, and that's okay. But I've lost this one, and I fought it. And it's okay to lose. It's okay to disagree, and disagree for a long time. Sorry, we ain't doing that. Oh, yes, we are. We've said that for three years. It's okay. It'll blur into nothing, and you'll give in because that's what you got to do. Uh, the other thing is it's okay to fight. Uh, if you haven't, uh, <laughs> another good book that has a couple of really good chapters on marriage in it is uh, Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order. Is that what it is? Beyond Order. And I have, I've loved it. Okay, and he's an intellectual, so he, he, d- 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 you got to really hang with him, you know. Sometimes it's just, a, it's a lot. So I don't recommend getting it. I'm telling you what to like about the book right now. I'm telling you, okay. Anyway, he's got a few chapters on intimacy. Actually, I would get it. They're fantastic. Um, and he talks about fighting, and you need to have a fight, and sometimes you just really need to have a fight, and it's okay to fight. You realize that a fight, think about this when you have a fight, and you're mad, and they're, you're over, there's no way, and you're fighting over it, and you go, you think about it, two human beings getting together, and you know what they're doing? They're fighting over life. These are, when you put two human beings together trying to forge a life together, you're going to fight over some stuff. Have the fight, he says. Go ahead and have the fight. You got somebody in the world who's, who's uh, pushing against something that you may need to change or you may be wrong about. You need that person in your life. Don't we all need that person? So when the fight happens, even though it's a mess, there's got to be something in the back of your head that goes, well, this must be worth fighting over, and we're going to have to, we're going to get through this, baby. It must be important, and we got to figure it out 
Negotiate whatever we have to negotiate so that we can get on together and move on. But it's worth the fight. Have it. But don't bail on it. The future's at stake. It's okay to fight about that. And then the other thing, it's okay to sacrifice. It's okay for me to lose. Not really okay, but it's okay. It's okay to lose. Put up the white flag and sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice. Orient your mind around something different than what you thought it was going to be. It's okay. I've lived. I've survived it. You've survived it. It's what makes life work. There'll be times when you will look at your partner and you will say, I think I married the wrong person. I think there might have been somebody better for me. And people bail on this. This thought comes into mind. You're not the right person for me. Jordan Peterson has this spot in his book. He's so smart, but it's so funny sometimes the way he addresses issues like this. He goes, uh, so if you're thinking whether or not you made the right choice, if you're wondering whether you made the right choice, he says, in all likelihood, you didn't. This is a smart guy talk. He says, there are 7 billion people in the world. At least 100 million might have been good partners for you. You just didn't have time to try them all out. And the probability that you found the theoretically optimal person approach is zero. (laughs) But then he writes this, and it's excellent. You do not find so much as make. And if you don't know that, you're in real trouble. You don't find so much as make. You make that baby work. And then you end up with something better on the other side of it. And then I want to say this uh, to the divorced. and uh, Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. You didn't commit the unpardonable sin. If you're in one or about to be in, you know, maybe you're going through a divorce process. I know some folks who are. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you've been divorced more than once. It's not ideal. We already know that. It has damaging effects. We know that. Uh, sometimes it's done in pure selfishness, and sometimes I bet you could look back and you go, yeah, I was, I was selfish at the time, and, but here I am. I'm in another marriage. Things are good. God's blessing it, and I got I to gotta be faithful here. That's what you got to do. That's what you're called on. But sometimes, all things considered, divorce is the best option. And I've pastored long enough to say that. It's, there's a handful of times when you look at a couple and you go, there's more harm going on here than a divorce would cause. Because we are capable, we are capable of doing that kind of damage, horrific damage to one another. We can be brutal to one another. Dallas Willard used an illustration years ago, and I've always had it in the back of my mind when I think about this. He used the illustration of a triage. Uh, Perhaps divorce could be viewed somewhat as the practice of triage, he writes, in medical care. Decisions have to be made as to who cannot, under the circumstances, be helped. 
They are then left to die so that those who can be helped should live. That is a profound statement as it applies to marriage, and it's the, it's the time at divorce when you say, the harm being committed here has to stop. And you make every bit as hard a call there as you would on a human life. And I, what I would say to anyone going through divorce is make sure you've addressed the issues with each other and you've gotten good godly advice. I've seen a lot of people run into marriages as fast as they run out of them. That's a mistake, folks. Get help. Get some, get some, get some help. You might be going through that process now. Maybe you've been divorced, and of course, there's lingering issues that stay with, a, with, a, with an ex. Uh, or you're going through that process now, do you realize if you have determined, hopefully with all your heart, that divorce is the best option, that you can do that in a loving way too and not have a hard heart when you do that? There are times when the most loving thing is to get out of this thing. And you do it because of love. And then you treat, you treat as, a, as a kingdom person, you show compassion and you're not spiteful and angry and do, finding every way you can to hurt a person on the way out. That's not the spirit. Um, even if it's the best option, it doesn't have to be thrown in people's faces. I've been reading a number of articles. That every time they pop up on marriage or divorce in the last two weeks, Johnny Manziel's just got a divorce. And the week of Thanksgiving, I read the article about his model wife who got a bunch of friends together to celebrate the official split and throw what she called an all-girls divorce party. And of course, he's going to be interviewed and you hear him trying to, to make the case something private and you, and you hear him, you know, it, it may very well be that them not being together is the best thing. I don't know. But I do know you don't throw it in each other's face. And my heart went out to him. Because he's having to explain that. And whether it ought to have happened or not, he's hurting. And that would hurt. And Jesus would say, don't be looking for ways to hurt. It's not what a kingdom heart does. You know, my thoughts for those of you who aren't married and you'd like to get married, this is all I would say to you for today. Get good premarital counseling when you, when, because you need to understand marriage and what you're getting into. So when you get to those muddy pits, you know exactly what to expect with that. Hey, let's work through this because on the other side is going to be something really beautiful if we can do that. So you need to understand marriage. Third thing is you need to manage expectations, and you have some sick ones. You need to know that. You have thoughts about marriage you don't even know you have that are way off the mark of what it ought to be, and you need to get those expectations grounded, or, or you're going to freak. 
And then hopefully, I would say to you, you have some good role models in your life that you're learning from. Like what married couples in your world would be helpful in you determining what a good marriage looks like? You need that. So let me close with this. Because Jesus' comment about the hard heart says, spiritually right now, where you are is more important to him than anything you've done. Where's your heart now? How spiritually in tune to God is it? And are you willing, and no matter what the circumstances are right now, to say, God, I'll do what you want me to do. I won't say I won't. So in John 4, there's this moment when Jesus, and he's had it, he's had her on his mind all day. And he has this private moment with her. And he lovingly addresses her intimate relationships. And we learn that those intimate relationships that were a little messed up revealed a deeper soul problem, deeper heart problem. Jesus can see it. And um, this gal has been married five times was ostracized by everybody. Jesus was happy to spend an afternoon with her. She's with someone who isn't her husband now. And you can't help after reading the verse that describes her situation that this deep personal relationship, intimate relationship of marriage, uh, the deepest one you can have in life has not satisfied her, hasn't fulfilled her, and... And it's, and it's been painful and damaging. And Jesus tells her, your soul has a thirst that can't be satisfied by even the best human relationship. Even the most intimate human relationship. Can't be. Um, you're going to need something more. You're going to need a spiritual kind of water to fulfill that need then you can be the kind of person that can enter a healthy relationships. You know, know what to do in a healthy relationship because you're not depending upon it to be everything. And Jesus said, I have that water. Now that leads me to say to those of us who are here and you already know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you need him because your soul will never be satisfied with anything else. But some of us right now are not strong enough spiritually. We are not strong enough spiritually to handle the relationships we're in. And as it relates to deep longings of, of a healthy relationship, some of us are too dependent on it. You're in a marriage right now, and you're putting too much pressure on that thing to be something it's not supposed to be. And you think you're loving a person, you're actually sabotaging the relationship because you're expecting it to be something it can't be. And when you expect too much out of a person, you end up crushing them and killing them, which is a way to do damage. You've you got, you got to assess that in your heart. Maybe I'm asking too much of this. 
Is my, is my heart spiritually healthy enough that I'm not depending so much on a spouse? Because I'm going to tell you, 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 you do a great service to a spouse when you're spiritually healthy and you're not demanding things because you won't be fulfilled in life without it. Or maybe you're not spiritually healthy enough to manage that desire or you're not spiritually healthy enough to, to manage the fact that you are failing at marriage. You, not your spouse, you are failing at it. You aren't being loving enough. You aren't being kind enough. You aren't being supported, supportive enough. You aren't being, in your mind, faithful enough. And if you're spiritually healthy, you go, I see that. It needs to stop. I see it, and I need to deal with it. That's on me. And a spiritually healthy person says, I can't keep bringing that kind of failure here and making my life, making my spouse's life harder than it needs to be. So that's the question on the table when Jesus says hard heart. What's your heart? Because both of those things will harden your heart. Your longings, way over the top. Expectations, way too high. Your failures, you're not addressing them well enough. Spiritual people in the kingdom, they don't overwhelm people with too high of expectations and they manage their failures. That's what a healthy heart's doing right now. Where are you? Let's pray. Father, the first word I want to say is that all of our souls, as much as we love love, we love intimacy and we love being the idea of a perfect marriage, we love it. There is not one relationship in this world that will ever truly satisfy us except with you. And that needs to be gotten straight today if it isn't. The second thing, Lord, I think about is in our own hearts right now, some of us, uh, just spiritually not at the place we need to be, and it's affecting us. It's affecting our marriages. We're asking too much of them, or we're ignoring our failures. I just pray you'll speak to our hearts right now on that. In Jesus' name.